Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. My name is Artemis Bear and I'm going to be hosting this event. We um, have lots of other amazing people to speak to you. So we would like to invite you to ask questions as and when you would like to. It would be good if you could indicate your question or ask your question in the chat. That would be fantastic. So I'd like to go around and ask everyone to uh, on the panel to introduce themselves. Um, could I ask Kezia to start, please? Sure. Hi, my name's um, Kezia Cantwell-Wright. I'm a staff member and founder of East Kent Subbury School. So um, as our name suggests, we're in East Kent. We're just about to reopen in a new site in Dover. We have children aged five to 14 at the moment, though we go up to 18, and we're based on the Subbury Valley School. At the moment, we're part-time for home-educated children, but we are applying for independent school status which we hope to get by next September. Um, I think that's it. Fantastic. Thank you, Kezia. Sophie. I'm Sophie. I'm a co-founder of The Cabin, which is a self-directed, consent-based, children's rights-based, ed-positive community for children aged 5 to 11 on the Hearts-Essex border. And we um, were founded in January 2018. So we've been going for a couple of years now. And we have 18 children. We run on two days a week. But our community is mixed in that um, not the children don't, aren't, it's not the same group of children necessarily that come on both days. We have some that do two and some that just do one. Thanks, Sophie. Lucy. Hey, um, I run TP Woods um, in Essex. We're an outdoor setting um, based in a private woodland. Uh, we have 16 kids at the moment. They're aged 6 to 11. Um, and we run three days a week, um, same as the others. It's homemade kids. Um, and the long-term plan is to get a full-time ed setting, but um, that's obviously dependent on legislative situation um we've been going at the learning community we've been going since uh, september 2018 uh, yeah that's it thanks lucy ellie and mute there we go um so hi i'm ellie um i run koita Kariad, um which is based just outside Carmarthen here in west wales um and we are a nature-based self-directed democratic learning community um Basically, um, we've been running since, well, we've been running in part since October 2019. We got our CIW registration then in January of this year, and then we had to shut. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's us really. Thanks, Ellie. And Kelly. Hi, I'm Kelly Humphrey, and I'm the founder and one of the facilitators at The Willows in Barton Mills in Suffolk. Um, we are mostly an outside setting, but we do have an eight metre bell tent um, equipped with natural resources, open-ended resources, games, puzzles, etc. We have um, a woodland, so we have a bit of a forest school ethos as well. And also um, an open playing field. My husband, who is a facilitator with me, is a sports coach, so he takes care of all of the football and the cricket and all the fun things um, sports-wise. 
Uh, we opened last September, so we are very new and we've been closed for the last five and a half months. So, um, so that's been a bit difficult, but we're going to be opening again in September. We are mostly for home educated children at the moment. We're open for three days a week and we have 18 children signed up at the moment with a few more um, waiting actually on the waiting list. Um, we, our age range is five to 12 years old. Um, and we're very, very self-directed, learning through play, um, autonomous, and yeah, that's us. Great, thank you, Kelly. I am Artemis Diva, and I am the founder of The Garden, which is a project in Bristol. Uh, our age range at the moment is five to 12. We don't have enough age limit, but we tend not to have teenagers um, yet. Uh, we... Um, uh, our educational philosophy is we are self-directed and we are consent-based. Thank you for that, Sophie. And um, we prioritise social and emotional well-being over pretty much anything else. So, I would like to ask you all to answer. Well, Artemis, you've, you've forgotten Rowan. Oh, Rowan, I'm so sorry. It's because it moved it around. I'm so sorry, Rowan. Don't worry. Um, hello, I'm Rowan and I am from Free We Grow, which is a um, self-directed democratic learning community based in South London. We're based in a nature reserve, which is quite important for us because we're also, um, we're nature based. But more than that, we operate on a kind of philosophy of a, of a school without walls. So we try to, um, within our practice, be indoors and outdoors and in the community around us. We have 12 children um, aged five to 11. And um, we would like to have more, but our, our um, space is limited. So we're working on that still. Um, and I said we're democratic, but we also actually operate more on sociocratic principles, which I'm happy to talk about. I would love to talk about that, Rowan. <laughs> Something that we've been thinking about a lot as well. Uh, so my first question for you all is, why? Why would you set up a self-directed education project? Can I go with you first, please, Rowan? Oh, hello. Um, so, um, so I think the, if I had to sum it up, it's because I wanted to create somewhere where I could live within my principles. So I've, I've, I've worked in the mainstream, I've worked in lots of different settings and always felt like there was a, an, a disalignment between how I wanted to be in the world and how I was able to be in the world. Um, and so, so really the, the need to set it up for me personally, but we do have six founders and each of them has a slightly different need. I'm the only founder who doesn't have children. Um, for them, I think it was, it's fair to say that it was trying to find a space for their children to live in alignment with with their values for me it was about myself and where i can be fully 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 in alignment with my values and it feels absolutely amazing to be there um and give a couple of um anecdotes around that but i'll pass on because i know time is short thank you kezia um for me it was very much driven by my children um we'd already taken the decision that we were going to home educate our children um that was going really well they were learning really well they were really sparky really happy um but i became frustrated with the inconsistency of home education and that we couldn't find like a second home if you like where we could go regularly and have a consistent community of people we saw every day. We saw lots of people. We were very social. We were a really rich home ed world, but it, we just wanted to see the same people to really create that 
strong community. Um, and so it just seemed really obvious to me to create a school that operated more like how we home educated, which was in an unschooling kind of way. And then I discovered Sudbury Valley School and thought, well, that's amazing. Where's the nearest one of those? And there wasn't one. Um, and me being the kind of person that I was, being a bit blasé, I was like, so let's just start our own, as you do. <laughs> and that was about four years ago. Um, but I think that it very quickly changed from being about just making what I wanted for my children, which was without a doubt the initial spark, into I'm so mad that this doesn't exist for other children because once I put out that initial message, I got so many emails and messages from parents saying, you know, how they, they really loved the idea of home education. They really wanted their children to, to have freedom, but they personally didn't want to be a home educator. It wasn't what they chose for themselves. They, were, they had always imagined their children would go to school. Um, they had careers or they, you know, they, they worked or whatever. It, it wasn't what they wanted. Um, and I felt really angry that parents would have to choose between the type of education or the life, you know, the family lifestyle. And why couldn't they have self-directed education but still have their children in school? Um, so. Thanks, Kezia. Sophie. Um, so I think like a big part of my motivation is social justice reasons, really. And I think that um, when I had my eldest 10 years ago, I realised how problematic um, the socialisation of children was in our society, basically, in terms of the problems that we say as adults we want to address and deal with, um, it just seemed like we were actually we were actively creating those problems through our parenting culture and through our culture of education and um i i just i don't know i had like an existential crisis i think and i and i just thought like this can't carry on i i felt like i couldn't be complicit in that um knowing or having that awareness was like if you know that then how what do you do next like just do it <laughs> i didn't want to do it i didn't want you know to normalize um, injustice to my children and I also wanted to respect my children's rights because they're humans and they have human rights and I didn't see how that could happen for them um, in what was available um, at the time I mean it just wasn't something that was the culture in nurseries preschools primary schools was in conflict with children's rights as far as I could tell and and so it was definitely like an ethical problem, personal and political problem. And um, and so I w uh, so the cabin is kind of like uh, supposed to be an example of d doing it differently and doing it in a way that is supposed to um, actually result in the society that we want to have. You know, that, that's the society that's actually aligned with a lot of the things that we say should be normal but aren't. Um, basically by normalizing children's rights consent and humanity <laughs> in the experience of childhood really and and so that was that was why that's been my motivation and the cabin is an expression of that um in practice um because i really believe that it's it's the practice that makes change contagious people can ha change their minds but if you can't see things differently in practice it things don't change 
Um, so that's it was really important to have something in practice that could challenge um, what what we accept as normal, basically. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, I'm going to jump in and give my experience there because it's really similar to yours, uh, slightly more convoluted because I used to work in climate change policy and I went through this quite complex process of thinking, right, OK, we're not going to we're not going to address this. Why are we not addressing this? And realising that it was like uh, it wasn't just that our government didn't want to do something about it, but they weren't capable. Our whole political system economic system just wasn't capable of addressing it and I went through a big process of kind of going but why why is that there's something that's not right in our culture there's something that's a bit broken that we're not not able to fix this uh, and I was like oh okay so we've got to change the system of government I, that's really hard oh you need to change our we need to change our whole culture whoa that's that's even harder that's that's whoa how do you do that oh okay that's how we treat children that's where it's all that's where it all comes from it's everything comes from how we treat our children if we're it's the basis for all systems of oppression and that that leads to that leads out to to everything and including you know not just systems of oppression but it's also uh, our political and economic systems and our and environmental destruction so yeah all, all of that really it's immense uh lucy Hey. Um, so similar to um, Kezia, for me the kind of the kickstart was was having kids and not wanting them to be in mainstream education. Um, I'd been working in education kind of my whole life and um, wanted to be involved with education, but just couldn't stand the idea of of working in a mainstream school. And um, so then when it came to putting my kids in a mainstream school, that was really just it. It didn't sit right. I didn't think that it fitted with um, my understanding of how children learn and um, it didn't seem to fit with all of the education research about and kind of development psychology and everything. Nothing says that children learn well in the kind of setting that we put them in in schools. Um, so it just felt like, why on earth would I subject my children to that? Um, and there wasn't an alternative. So, um, yeah, set one up myself. Why not? How hard can it be? Um, turns out quite hard, but it's also awesome and um, a lot of fun. So TP Woods runs um, kind of along the lines of trying to create um, an environment that fits how we know children learn best. Um, so that's kind of, it, yeah, developmental psychology, but with, with an element of social change as well. I wouldn't say that's our primary driver, the more just kind of what's actually good for children and looking after emotional and social well-being um, as kind of the starting point for everything because if they're not happy and well-adjusted, then they're not going to do well in later life. So, yeah, that's, I'd say that's probably my main driver. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, Ellie? Okay, um, well, the reasons I got into it, I mean, I've come from a similar sort of background, I think, to Rowan. I, I, I've come from teaching um, in mainstream and then in special school for 12, 13 years. Um, did my forest school qualifications, um, which started a sort of an enlightenment, really, for me, um, having been crammed in a classroom for X number of years. And, um, yeah, not really looked back from that since. Um, had my two small children as well and um, yeah it just further adds fuel to the fire really of why why we've set up Koi Kariad and um, and why we do what we do um they're um you know linking children connecting children with nature and allowing them that freedom to learn through play um which things like the foundation phase curriculum 
pretend to do in Wales because we're slightly different from England. And um, but it, it it just never happened. It almost got beaten out of the curriculum. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's yeah, just basically a slow rebellion against teaching in a in a in a school, as it were, and 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 just trying to really recognize as, as you've said previously you know how children learn and how um, you know and how they want to learn how they want to be um and, and how they should be so that's really thank cool. you ellie kelly totally the same as ellie like um so we so when we started home educating we done every single group we could cram in we done the sports and the french and the science everything but we found that there was never time for children to just play and be free and actually follow their own intrinsic motivations and learn what they want to learn. And so, um, I mean, we would set up, you know, park meets and things like that, but um, it wasn't consistent. There wasn't that community feel. There would always be different people. And so the drive for us was to create that, the community and to just give children a place to be free to learn what they would like to learn and just just be children because there isn't really many places where children are allowed to be children these days um so that was that was what what we're all about um so we just found ourselves being really really busy all the time and you know, this is, it's just, we're a place, the Willows is a place where children can come and they, if they want to chill in the hammock, you know, we can do a guided meditation or you can go and play your sports or you can go in the forest and build your dens and climb trees or you can go into the tent or you can go and do some pond dipping, obviously with some adults. Um, but it is, yeah, it's just a place for children to just, to just learn and learn through play. Um, so yeah, so that's that's why that was the why for us definitely because there Thanks, was Kelly. there was nowhere else like that. So Thanks so much. I what um what you and also Kezia said about the consistency and I think someone else mentioned that as well was was really important for me as well because I was really I found home ed really appealing and we were very involved in the home ed community from when my eldest was very young. But I found that we were doing a lot of driving around which I really didn't want to be doing and also there was this sense of um if anyone fell out with each other in the community because we're in Bristol which has a huge home ed community people would just avoid each other. And I was like, that's, that's not really being a community. Like I want some of my children, if there's a problem, like there's a, there's a way we can sort it out and actually continue to be a community rather than just going out, oh, we've fallen out. We're not going to have anything to do with each other. Um, so yeah, that was a huge, huge motivation for me. Thank you everyone. That was some really awesome answers. Um, I did get everyone that time, didn't I? Awesome. <laughs> Getting the hang of this now. Um, we've had a really interesting question from Rachel Johnson. I wondered, Rachel, would you like to turn your microphone and camera on to ask your question? I'm trying. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Well, can you hear me? I'm not sure my mic's working. Yes? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, brilliant. Um, so it's just, I was just wondering, because, you know, looking around the various communities, oh my goodness, I don't know what that photo is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely photo. Yeah, I don't know how that got there. Kids, I reckon. Um, there's a lot of 
um, there's the, the, well, there's very few alternative education settings anyway, and then a lot of them are geared towards the younger primary age group, and there doesn't seem to much out there for secondary age children. And I suspect there's probably a whole lot of reasons if there were any thoughts around that. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so there are at least I know that uh, the garden and East Kent Sudbury don't um, aren't exclusively for younger children. I don't know if any and sorry and TP Woods and and Chloe's Carriads. Did I say that okay? Uh, uh, and but. Um, it, it seems to be more appealing for younger ones. I know that there's also the self-managed learning college in Brighton, which is for exclusively for young people who are nine plus. And I think I can probably excitingly announce that we are about to set up a self-managed learning college in Bristol, which I'm super excited about. I'm working with Ian on that at the moment. So it is something that I think people are thinking about. I think people are often come to this because they have young children themselves and that's probably one of the reasons why there are a lot of projects for younger for young people uh, and I suspect as our movement grows there will be more and more projects for older ones as well would anyone else like to contribute to that question Rowan I was going to say there's also um, the new school is opening in September which which is secondary as well as of course Summerhill and Sands yes there is yeah Sophie yeah, I, I just um, from our perspective, we um, we matched the entry age with the eldest of the children that we knew we were going to be coming in with. So we had like a we narrowed it in a way. We started with five to eight, with a view that we would add provision for every year that the children aged essentially. So we went from five to eight, and then it was five to nine, and then five to ten. Now we're at five to eleven, and our eldest children will age out theoretically at the end of this year. And so we're, we're hoping and planning to set up a space for olders or, you know, for basically 11 plus, but with a windowed transition period. So there isn't like a drop off where you have to transition, but like an option for, for transitioning. And then the slightly different provision that hopefully will be in good alignment with the needs of them as they get older. Um, so for us, it's that gradual organic process of growth with the eldest children in the setting will be what leads us to have a space for older children. I wonder if it's... Um, partly that hitting the age 11 and the secondary school application um, thing. And I'm wondering whether in home ed more broadly, there is a bit of a drop off when families come to that decision um, point again of, well, are we going to carry on home ed or are we going to do secondary school? Um, I'd be interested to know what the number, like if there is a number drop anyway across all home ed. Um, but yeah, like, like um, you were saying, Artemis, I imagine that as time goes on, we will see more spaces for, for older young people as children age, I guess. But it's, um, yeah. it is a challenge. Lucy. Um, I think one of the reasons that we've come up against is resourcing um, and the size of the community. Um, so we kind of we see it as a bit of a chicken and egg that the only way we're going to attract um, the teenagers is if there are already teenagers in the setting. Um, but, you know, can't get them until there's more teenagers. They go find around. Um, and the, the need for an indoor space um, with like, good computer, good Wi-Fi, um, kind of a range of resources to reassure parents about the kinds of things that their kids can be doing in the setting. I think that has a big impact as well. Um, I think you're less likely to get parents buying into um, the kind of learning through play um, when they're older. Um, it's easy to persuade parents that children learn best through play when they're young, um, but then 
they start get, getting the fear um, of what are they going to do when it comes to exam time and GCSEs and what are they going to do for a job. And I think we just, um, there's, there's a need to build the evidence base um, for self-directed education as our children probably get older and we develop that evidence base with our own children um, and tapping into stuff like Summerhill and Sands, but they're obviously just a bit different because they've got the curriculum um, yeah. and it's that, that fear factor for parents, I think, is really powerful. Yeah, I totally agree, Lucy. And I think you're right about the evidence base because um, uh, I was looking at this last last year and I found that there's a really, really solid evidence base for primary school children for learning through play. Like That's really uncontroversial, even in conventional education. Like pretty much people pretty much all know that children learn best through play. Uh, there isn't a really solid evidence base for uh, There is some, but there isn't a huge amount simply because there aren't enough people doing it. So we need more people to be doing it so we can demonstrate that it works. So, yeah. I totally agree. Uh, Kezia. Sorry. Um, so we're actually just about to start a research project with Harriet Patterson, which I'm very excited about. Um, she just got ethical clearance for it. So we're starting in September. We're hoping that it will be a longitudinal study. So um, she'll do interviews with students, staff and parents, as well as look at the records that we keep anyway. Um, to see what the children are interested in and how they're going about their learning at kind of key points and then how their learning develops so that hopefully we'll have some way to map um, how it was that they seemingly um, magically learnt something um, in a short space of time because, you know, like my youngest daughter has just gone from not really reading very much to reading Roald Dahl books in like three months and no one knows exactly how she did it. She, it just kind of happened. We think Roblox was a key factor, but you know, some kids they're not outwardly displaying. So it, and so unless you've got those records of saying, oh, this was what they were doing with their time. It's hard to pinpoint how it happened. Um, because if you look back, three years later, you're not going to remember that she was obsessed with Roblox at the time and typing messages to her friends was probably a key factor in that. Um, the other thing I was going to say is um, we're really excited for the, for the first, because this has been an issue for us getting um, older students and the older students we have had, we've struggled to retain because there wasn't enough other old students that they they de-schooled with us they de-stressed with us but then when they wanted to get on with stuff they didn't have enough other people to connect with to make that really exciting and so they would move on and do that elsewhere which is still a success uh, but for the first time we're going to have equal numbers of kids over 10 and under 10 in our setting so hopefully well, that older group will like develop and yeah be our team cohort which is very exciting so we'll see how it goes but you do need different types of resources for those two groups I think yeah absolutely thank you Kezia uh, does anyone else have anything to add to that question before we move on uh, we've had a question from Zoe, uh, which I might read out because um, it's so it's do you have any ideas on how what you are doing can be supported in countries where it is illegal. Is the community of self-directed learning communities in the UK interested in assisting this freedom beyond borders? And if so, how? I would really recommend that you um, speak to someone called Luke Friedman, who runs a project in Spain because um, 
yeah, I would recommend you speak to him because he has some experience of that. Um, I know that he is part of the Freedom to Learn Network. He is, has done some research on self-directed learning in UK projects as well. And also uh, being in touch with the IDEC and UDEC organisations as well, which might be able to support you. Lucy? I was just going to say um, getting in touch with Derry Hannum because he has a good grasp on the kind of the legal situation in lots of different countries and is certainly very well connected with UDEC and IDEC as well. So he could point them in the right direction for their specific country if he didn't know. Thank you, Lucy. Rowan. Thanks. Um, I, um, the Freedom to Learn Network, I mean, I think it's a really difficult question because the legal situation in each country is very, is, is really different. So, so it's difficult to know how, how to support. However, the Freedom to Learn Network does, does have kind of almost like working groups around, around specific things. So for example, we have a facilitators group who, who share um, advice and learning around, around being facilitated in self-directed settings. And we run a monthly call where the topic of discussion is, is, um, is suggested by the team. And that's open to facilitators from other countries as well. Um, so everybody is welcome to join that. Within the Freedom to Learn Network, you can also propose, if you have an interest in something that you'd like to explore with others, and you can propose that to the group and people with similar interests can come together. So for example, Artemis, is in, which you mentioned earlier, um, is involved in, and there's a session tomorrow around looking at portfolios instead of exams. That That, that is a particular working group and, and Potentially, if you have interest in that, you could join that, I assume, even if you're not, not in the UK. So there are various ways within the Freedom to Learn form of self-organizing around areas where, where there can be mutual support. Sophie? I don't have an answer at all because I think it's a really difficult problem but I just wanted to express solidarity for people in places where you can't do this because I know how challenging it can be even here where we have some some space in the law to do it um just about <laughs> um and and I can and to be criminalized for essentially um, giving children freedom to be themselves and to learn what interests them is is horrendous and and I really empathize with you and anyone that's in a in a country where you basically are acting illegally to to do what I would consider is probably in the child's best interest is really distressing so um so yeah just so an expression of solidarity and and, a, and um, a desire for change but yeah like I said I wish I knew what what was possible to do to help um apart from like Ram was saying just extend community yeah thank you Sophie yeah absolutely um I'm trying to there's quite a lot of questions um and some of them are quite similar, so I might um, combine some of them together if that's okay. I just want to let people know, in case they're not familiar, when we do the finger wiggles, that um, that means that we agree with each other. It's a sort of a convention that a lot of us use in uh, in the meetings that we host. So just wanted to let you know. Wondered why we were wiggling our fingers at you. Uh, so we've got a question around uh, finding a location and particularly how that relates to, to financial challenges around finding a location. So does anyone have anything they would like to say about that? Kezia. This seems like an apt question for me right now. Um, so after three and a half, four years of searching, we finally have found the suitable location. Um, there were lots of challenges to it because we wanted to start a school. We wanted um, 
a whole building, <laughs> like a big building and preferably with grounds around it. And we were a brand new company, um, you know, because any project like this, it is a business as well. And I like to think, you know, when I started my web design um, branding studio, all I needed was a secondhand laptop and a, like, you know, a bit of a corner in my bedroom. And from there, you could build up a business and then maybe rent a bit of a studio and then maybe a serviced office. And then one day you might have a whole building. But we wanted the whole building from the beginning and nobody would touch us with a barge pole. It was a nightmare. Um, so we found that you need accounts. So what we did was we rented rooms from a community centre, which allowed us to build up that initial um, accounts, uh, business history, and get some enrollment. And we found a lot of people were watching us to see if it would work as well. And so it allowed us to kind of get some credibility. Cred ugh, credibility behind us to show that we weren't just a flash in the pan and it was going to last. And now we have an actual building and it's actually ours. It's very, very, very exciting, but um, it's um, a huge investment financially. And um, I think if you're thinking of doing something like this, you need to think, dig really deep, um, preferably find some co-founders that have lots of money um, and, you will probably just have to put everything you have on the line for it, I'm afraid, if you, you know, unless you're really lucky and someone gifts you a space. And that's kind of how it is. Thanks, Kezia. Uh, Lucy, I think you had your hand up as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so we had a similar conundrum in that kind of we didn't know how to get started because you can't get can't get the building until you've got the evidence um, so we that's why we started as a an outdoor only setting um, in a woodland and literally what we did was email a local landowner explaining what we wanted to do and asking if he had any land that would be suitable um, and he just said yes it was as simple as that we just um, persuaded him that we were professional capable people got him interested in the kind of um, setting that we wanted to create just had a chat with him um, and he just gave us a lease to a chunk of his land. Um, and I think that kind of um, don't be afraid to ask because you just never know what people might have affinity to and and be willing to support. Um, but, yeah, we're now in a position where we need to move into a building and making decisions about whether we buy or lease and how we afford that. Um, and thinking in terms of financial models, um, I know Kezia and I both, um, I don't know about the others actually, I think, um, we have a sliding scale of fees um, so that we can support families on lower income um, who wouldn't necessarily be able to afford it and um, also work towards being able to, you know, saving up some money as well um, for resources and a deposit and that kind of thing. So I just wanted to put that out there as a financial model that works. Great, thank you. Sophie? Yeah, just to kind of offer a really... Um, opposite perspective to the one that Kezia did in a way. Um, we considered the big building um, thing for a year and we realised that like for us it was just too much, like it was too much stress, too much commitment, too much overhead, too much basically is <laughs> we would summarise it and, and we felt the need to try and create a situation for ourselves which was low stress and as agile as possible, that was like what was most appropriate for us personally and just felt 
um, felt right. Um, and um, I, I just love village halls. I mean, I know it's so like basic to say, and they're kind of overlooked, but um, our arrangement works really well for us because it's really low risk and it's mutually beneficial, which means that um, the folk that we're, we're you know, using the hall from want us there. <laughs> they're like allies. They want, they benefit from us being there. So there's no, we don't have to worry about them. I mean, I don't know. I think I have like, maybe I feel have some sort of issue or whatever where I feel a little bit fearful of being arrested or getting in trouble or something I don't know and, and it's just nice to know that um our little home has got our back <laughs> basically and um that you know one of the benefits was that when COVID happened the extent of the admin to deal with it from a sort of venue and financial perspective was to email Sue who is the person that is the like chair of the village hall committee and say, hi Sue, as you know, we're locked down now, so we, we can't be in the hall anymore. And that was it. And she was just like, all right, sweet. See you when you come back. And, and it was so easy. Um, and we don't have to worry about the toilets. We don't have to worry about anything because Sue, you know, helps us out and takes care of it. And it's a really nice shared responsibility. That's really flexible and low risk. And, um, and our village hall is great. We have like a huge, one big open plan space. There's like an adjoining space. It's curtained. We've got a great kitchen. It flows into outside big garden space and it's really affordable. So um, I would say like, look for your village hall. Like we looked at all the village halls in our area. We're in a rural area. We just went to every village, found the village hall, looked at it. We had like a, you know, a list of things that had to be free flow into the outside. You know, we had, we had our hit list and then we whittled it down to where we are now and um, it's working for us really well. Amazing. Thank you, Sophie. Yeah, I've, uh, we, so um, before we uh, found, well, before I moved to where we are now, which has the space in, in the garden, which is why it's called the garden, um, we looked at lots of different options and we, uh, some of the really appealing ones were scout huts are amazing. Scout huts are often free in the day because they're often only used in the evenings um, and they're often really cheap. Uh, and the values of the people who run them are often really consistent with the things that we want to do. They're often really behind what we want to do. So scout huts are a really good option. Community gardens are another good option because they, as well, like if you don't mind being outdoors, sometimes they do have an indoor space as well, even if it's just a shelter, and that can be a really good place to get started. Um, and also that oh adventure playgrounds as well i don't know i i didn't don't know if adventure playgrounds happen outside of bristol i don't know if it's a bristol thing but we have adventure playgrounds and they have like a big amazing outdoors and they have an indoor space and they're they're quite a good option they're more expensive than either community gardens or scout huts but they can be a really good option um and yeah church halls yeah absolutely fantastic um yeah totally rowan so um just as tiny little thing to add to everyone else that is finding someone who kind of needs someone in their space so what, what we did is we 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 had we, we knew we wanted to be within a certain area of south london we created a radius mapped out every potential space we'll tilt it down to six and then brought it down to one and the nature reserve we're in has within its constitution a need to um, meet educational aims and they have found over the last seven years that schools don't come and use it anymore um, just because schools are so so kind of classroom-based and curriculum-based that they don't have time to use it anymore and they're not meeting that constitutional aim. And so the, the Nature Reserve does have a field centre and the council was coming under pressure from developers who say, well, if it's not being used, maybe we should just knock it down and turn it into flats. 
So they were quite keen to show that it's being used. The rent, the rent is is kind of affordable for that reason because they because it meets their their objectives. So kind of finding a win-win solution. Um, although that that's that's not very that's not often forthcoming. But um, I think that's why we, we ended up with quite a lovely little site. Great, thank you, Ron. Uh, we've got a question from Catherine Fox. Would you like to turn your microphone on, Catherine Fox? Well, I can read it out. Actually, it might be easier if I read it out. But feel free to feel free to say if you want anything clarified. Um, so, uh, oh, you're there. Hello. Sorry, it just took me forever to do that. Fine. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was just, I, I'm sort of, I have a lot of thoughts in mind about how I can contribute to this whole movement. And I'm thinking that I would like to focus on the council kids, the kids who otherwise don't get to sort of flex these muscles and practice these skills. But I'm worried that these two hour blocks that I would have after their school day is just not really enough. And I'd like to hear from you all who are in the trenches. Is that enough time for them to really settle in and get into a groove? Or is that just too forced? You kind of need big blocks of time, don't you? Would anyone like to answer that? Uh, Sophie? I, would, I honestly think it's enough. Like, it's not the same. It's not the same as being somewhere for three days or it's not as, you know, immersive. And, you, you know, what the impact might be less, but in some, in some ways. But I think that, um, I mean, I'm just thinking I, that in addition to the cabin, I've run um, sessions for, for children um, around change making like basically problem solving and activism kind of sessions. And we do those for an hour and we circle in and we circle out and we have the stuff in the middle. And I think they're really, they, they do have an effect. They have an impact. They, they, there is a cultural contagion to that. It does challenge and create contrast um, to, to do that practice, even in a small window. So I would absolutely say that if you have two hours, there's a way to structure that where you are doing something. The, the main point is to do something that is different to what is normative. It's basically create a contrast. And if you create a contrast, you will open up questioning and you open up the mindset to see that things can be different. And then that causes reflection. And it's the reflection that then I think can lead to change and action and questioning and criticality and all of that. So, so yes, it won't be the same, you know, it won't be the same. And you might have to think about how you hold that frame um, because they'll be coming out of a really different ex experience and they, they will have internalized some things which you might, which might be challenged like in this, in what you're trying to do. But I think like have some, um, yeah, like trust, trust that they'll be up for it basically yeah. and give them a chance and, and, um, and yeah, definitely, I would say just go for it. Create something cool in two hours. I think you can do it. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I completely, I completely agree, Sophie. I think um, when we were setting up, we were very lucky to have the um, the received wisdom of the A Place to Grow in Stroud, who'd been running for a few years before us. And they were amazingly generous with their time and their energies helping us set up. And the incredible Albert Lamb uh, said to us that his his view, he'd been in democratic education for a really long time, and he said that his view was that you needed three consecutive days in order to have a solid community. But that that is to have a community. and having a community isn't the only way to have an impact and we all know these stories of of like interventions in people's lives where they look back on this one experience it can be quite a small experience it can be one 
instance of a meeting or one course or one thing that just completely changed the course of someone's life. And it doesn't have to be yeah that long or that intensive. It can be life changing. Even just one conversation can be absolutely life changing. So yeah, I say absolutely go for it. Uh, Rowan. Oh, I've I've um I've just shared a link um in in the chat. Um, of a project that's an after-school club in a state school in India, which which is democratic, self-directed, and it's it's a brilliant example. So I'd look into that. Amazing, thank you, Rowan. Would anyone else like to um, uh, respond to Catherine's question? Excellent. Okay, um, we have got more questions. Actually, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about. Um, someone mentioned sort of the funding and I'd like to talk a little bit about the sort of the legal structure and the funding options because there's lots and lots of different ways you can go some um you can set up a school or you can be a learning community that doesn't have any kind of legal structure you can be a home ed group or you could be you can be registered as childcare, like the garden is so I just wanted to kind of um ask people's experiences of their legal structure and their and their funding options would anyone like to talk about that first can I ask, actually, can, could I maybe ask um, Kelly to talk about your project? Absolutely. Um, so we are, um, we're self-funded um, and we are not registered with any governing body. We're, we're a limited company. Um, so we use the exemption clause, um, exemption clause 10, I think it is, on the, the Ofsted handbook. I think that's the same as uh, the cabin. Um, so, yeah, we are just completely self-funded, um, which was tricky to start with. But, you know, it's um, building up now. So, um, yeah, so we're just self-funded. Amazing. Thank you. Um, Ellie, would you like to tell us a bit about your um, legal structure and your, your funding? Okay, um, so based in Wales here, um, anything, if you look after a child in receipt of payment, um, anything over two hours or an hour and 59 minutes yes they are that nitpicky um you have to register with care inspectorate wales um so we had to go down the whole process we've registered as child care um um the sessional daycare with um care inspectorate wales um that was a, a whole minefield of fun um and yes we are self-funded so parents pay fees but we then have um um an application form or pass the application form where they can put in it if you know so we can sort of receive payment in kind so some parents will come and help us out with site work um over and above our community days and things and uh, and, and help us out that way um which helps them then to reduce their fee fee paying amount and what have you so that's, that's quite good but yeah the care inspector at wales thing is the biggest difference we have to register so um yeah it's uh it is, it is the law here in Wales and we could have gone down the school route but we have we would have to be um you'd have to be open five days a week and we didn't want to be doing that initially so we're only open two days a week and uh yeah so it's CIW. Um, and also presumably there would also then be expectations on output as well if you're registered as a school too mm -hmm. yeah 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 exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. um Kezia, could I ask you about your experience yeah, um, it's tricky because we, we looked at all of the different options. Um, I think in some respects we've chosen the most difficult path and we're not there yet. We're still only halfway <laughs> there. Uh, we really want to be um, an independent school um, for 
variety of reasons we want to be open five days a week um that's what our children want it um it's just what we always wanted to have that full amount of time um and in order to support families that do work full time and want this freedom um and for whom home education isn't the route that they personally want to go down um Financial wise, we decided to go with a sliding scale model because we didn't want um, financial means to be the reason that people didn't come. Um, but I am continually challenged about whether that was the right decision. Um, it's fantastic that we do support families on lower incomes, um, but without any external funding, essentially the only way that we make that happen is by not paying our staff. So for every family that pays the low fees, that's someone that doesn't get a salary. Um, and so there's always a trade-off. So then also it limits who we can have as staff because people need to have an independent income. So when we talk about things like equity and access, I think we need to think about both the families and the staff. Um, and then the, another aspect that has occurred to me, the way that we do our, as our sliding scale, we call it, um, we say that our fee is what it is, um, but you can apply for means-tested discounts uh, that is unfunded. <laughs> we try and make it as clear as possible that basically you're, you're, it's money the school doesn't get. Um, and so, uh, and then people fill in a form and they send evidence of their income to our accountant who then just tells us which band to place them in. So we don't know what their income is and things. But um, one thing we found, and for example, the Sudbury Valley School just charges a flat rate and they say it's up to the parents to figure out how to make that. They make that flat rate very low. Um, is that some people can have very low income um, but have like no expenditure, so not be necessarily hard up. And then other people can have quite big income but have very high expenditure and find that, a that fee band a real struggle. So it, it's not a perfect solution is, I guess, what I'm coming getting at. Like, I support the aim of what we do, but it isn't necessarily perfect for us or always perfect for families. And there are even still, despite what we do, families that say they can't afford it. Um, and something I've even encountered is families who say, well, your fee structure doesn't work for us because we would be in the top band. And that really grates because they basically say, oh, well, we wouldn't get the discount. <laughs> And that's annoying. Um, so I think there's a sense of people paying for other people as well. It's difficult. Um, and then the whole school thing, it's really complicated. Um, and essentially we're having to craft a curriculum where we don't really believe in curriculum, which is really challenging. Um, but uh, I think we're nearly there and we, we've, we've done a really good job and we'll find out in the next 12 months what Ofsted think. Uh, legally speaking, what's the legal structure of the East Kent Sudbury School? At the moment we're a um, 
company limited by guarantee and we're just a home education provision so we have no sort of formal legal status we're an out of school setting yeah thank you um so the garden is a com- at the moment we're a company limited by guarantee we're at the moment moving towards well it feels like forever we've moving towards being a community interest company um other options are you can also be a community interest organization and a charity so there's those four options there then maybe some more i've forgotten but so the more you move along from limited company to charity um the more regulation there is and the more administrative burden there is but also then the more access to funding there is so um the more towards charity is the more you can uh, apply to different kinds of trusts to to fund you um which is one of the reasons why we're converting to a community company so we can so we can apply for more funding um is there anyone here who is um anywhere else along that apart from a limited company uh ellie yeah we're a cic so we're a community interest company um but because the structure was already there for um from the from the community that we've um, our site is on um we've got, we're on a 37 acre small holding um and we've got uh we, we rent their building from them but the 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 they had a sort of a structure of a CIC company for education purposes already set up. It had lapsed for, for their purposes. So we sort of picked it up and run with it because um, it, it kind of followed the same lines. So that was quite good. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, and in terms of um, sort of uh, relationship with um, Ofsted, so we are registered with Ofsted as childcare, which um, carries an administrative burden for sure. Um, but the advantage is, is is that we, it means that people can apply for funding through the various childcare schemes, so through tax credits and through the childcare voucher scheme. Um, there are some. I wouldn't say it's not something I would necessarily wholeheartedly recommend to everyone because that it isn't. It isn't necessarily straightforward. And one of the reasons why it's simple for us is because it's technically at a domestic it's at my address which means that we can register as childcare on domestic premises which makes it a little bit simpler for us it's not necessarily as straightforward if you're registering somewhere else um there's also issues similar to what kezia similar to what you said about so if you're in we have a sliding scale as well so if you're on the very lowest band you are going to be paying the lowest amount but you're also able to access up to 85 percent of the cost paid for which means the disparity in what people are paying is absolutely massive and there's sort of there's something around that that we haven't quite found a fix for um and we don't really know how to but i'm very up for discussing it all with you uh, does anyone have anything they wanted to is anyone not spoken or have anything they'd like to say about the legal structure and funding lucy I just wanted to say about funding that um, you can apply for grants um, to for kind of equipment and for, so we got a grant for um, our yurt and compost and shed and stuff like that for structures and that kind of stuff. Um, but you can't get funding to pay for to subsidise fees um, because basically they won't give you money to pay for kids to be in education where they could be going to the school which is already funded. Um, so that's just something to think about in terms of funding. You can get it if particularly if you have a community aspect to your to your organisation. You can apply to all sorts of grants, um, even if you're because we're a not for profit. We're limited by guarantee as well, and you can get national lottery funding like that. You don't have to be a charity, um, but there are a lot of restrictions about supporting projects that provide education because obviously there's a lot of funding for schools. 
Uh, I'd just like to say that it, it, it is possible to get funding for to subsidised places, um, but, but not very, but yeah, well, uh, not very commonly though. You, uh, the big the big funds and trusts probably won't, um, but I know that the Self-Managed Learning College do have a local trust that will fund places, and I believe, uh, I think they've also had places funded for them from by local authority as well in the past as well. Uh, so it is possible to get um, funded places but it's not not by applying to the big trusts I think that's true actually because then I think it's the new school they're going to be partially um, they're going to have places funded by local authority for um, as a kind of an alternative provision type of setting and um, so that's that's an angle but obviously that's quite um, regulated probably extreme yeah it's extremely regulated and also i mean i haven't spoken to them actually i'd love to speak to them actually about what they're um about how they are managing the relationship with the local authority around what's expected of them and the curriculum because there are still i've, I've looked into this myself and actually as an alternative provision there's still quite a lot of expectation on you relating to the national curriculum so yeah i'm not i'm not yeah i when we looked into it we thought no that's definitely not going to work not going to work for us thank you kezia I'll just add one tiny thing. We're about to change to become a charity. Uh, we're going to apply for that really soon uh, because we want to be able to access more funding. But um, if anyone's thinking of doing something similar to what we've done, we um, realised that we shot ourselves in the foot somewhat by being really clear that we always had the ambition to become a school. So it's taken us a lot longer than we originally thought because like everything always does. Um, but because we always said that from the outset and we've never wavered from that aim, if, if we had just said we're just home education provision and then one day applied to become a school, there are lots of things that we probably could have applied for. But um, everyone always says, well, the thing is we'd apply, we'd fund you in your current status, but we won't give it to you when you're an independent school but then there are probably other things you could apply for like there are people that would pay for bursaries and other things but we're like we're not that so they won't but because we're not staying as this they won't either so we've that's put us in a awkward position which is frustrating that is really frustrating. Uh, I, there's one thing I wanted to add, actually, which is that as well as all those legal structures, you can also simply be a constituted group, which can also allow you to access funding. So you don't have to have um, you don't have to be registered with Companies House or the Charities Commission. You can just be a constituted group will allow which will allow you to access some funding, um, or just be a home ed co-op, which doesn't necessarily need a constitution at all. So you could just be really, really informal and flexible. I think there might be some. Um, some legal implications for that so you have to kind of you do still you, you do still have to have some um there's some requirements on you in terms of safeguarding i believe but you still like it, as long as there's an awareness of that i think that's fine um yeah thank you very much so else have anything to add on the legal structures and fees great thank you so we've um we've got more questions but there's actually loads of questions we've got lots of questions from uh, tom bishop would you like to turn your microphone on hello everyone Hi, tom. Hi. um so uh yeah i've just uh, quit my job as a teacher um feeling rather liberated um <laughs> we've been home editing our kids who are now three and nine um and would really really like to be able to attend some kind of community but there's um there's not really anything uh, near where we live at the moment um 
So we're thinking about <laughs> considering setting something up, but um, there are some concerns for us over the uh, what the impact would be on our time, energy, life in general. And uh, just wondering if you if you find you uh, do you live and breathe running your community, or are you able are any of you able to run it in a less intense way, time and energy wise, or does it just take over your life and there's nothing else you can do but that? Thanks. Well, who well who would like to start? <laughs> Sophie. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, I think, to, you know, it's a personal thing in a way, I guess. It, I think it depends on how much it's running through your veins, um, how much of your life ends up moving over to it. Um, for me, like I, I think I shared in my check-in, like for me, this is really part of how I, it's very inter linked with my own sense of self my feeling of like the point of being on the planet kind of thing so so it's one one way that I express that that links into other ways that I try and be activated on that as well um and you know even down to the actual relationship that I have with my children relationship I have with other family members and you know it's I don't know but I think once you start home educating that kind of starts to happen in some ways maybe um but I think you know in a way I don't know I don't don't feel like you have to become a victim of your project either I guess like it, I think you can decide how much of your life you want it to take up and create boundaries around it if you know if you need that um and I think and and one of the things that that I found really really helpful in my process is doing incremental projects that have built towards where we are now and I think if you're new to home ed and you haven't organized in your local community yet or you, you know like you said you've just left teaching and so you're probably in a state of de-schooling yourself right now but the best advice I would have would be to play around with it until you feel what feels right for you and your family by doing smaller scale things to build relationships locally and just to also skill up because you did I, I did so much learning um over the you know uh, years leading into us opening the cabin and if I hadn't done that in sort of um safer spaces in a way like once you actually launch and you open your doors and you're like come to the cabin you, know, you need to you need to have something good that is like ready for people and it and you don't necessarily want to be doing all your learning and mistake making in that space so so the things that I did um you know I started off even just doing a weekly meetup in the woods with other local families but regularly so that we did it over time and you and there was learning there then I did yeah, a I mean, local uh, we 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 have we do have all of that we've got um you know there is a big community in South Birmingham and uh, it's been it's a very strong uh, group of people that we that we see reasonably regularly um and that's been going on for the last five five years since uh, our eldest was of school age and didn't go so we, we do we are embedded within the community and there's a lot of stuff going on um it's just that a few of you have said things like um some of it can be inconsistent or you get different people turning up or um particularly now i mean during the last few months obviously things have kind of stopped and um but yeah it, it's just that consistency that we'd really like where the children have the time to play but are able to spend a load of time with with other children doing the same thing yeah, sure thing. I get that. We did. We uh, so so. I hear what you're saying, and and I, I'm not trying to take you back to zero. I guess with that in mind, but um, I guess yeah. I don't know. Do what feels right to you. I ran a project for a year, which was families that that committed, and I think commitment maybe is the word here. And what you were saying, they committed to come for a year to a project that we did one day a week, but as a whole family, and that was the the lead in. And we then had about um, almost all the children from that project then became members of the cabin when we opened the cabin. So it was a really nice lead-in but again like I said there's learning and organizing so even if you do have a really active community I would still recommend 
um, doing some organising yourself um, and and yeah, as a lead-in to to understand how much of your life you want it to take up, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I, my experience is that absolutely it has completely taken over my life, which is not to say there wasn't anything else in my life because that absolutely, that absolutely is. But it's, it's consuming because I want it to be because it's my, it's what I'm really passionate about. It's what I care about most in the world. It's, it's, it, uh, so I suppose it's very hard to sit outside that and kind of give advice on whether it's possible not to because that's what it is like for me. And, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's lots of projects out there that get started and don't, and don't end up going anywhere. And I, and I think, I do wonder if you're, like if you're not at least prepared to kind of give a lot of yourself to it, I, I don't know how, how well that's gonna work because you're, you're pushing against a lot of things. You're pushing against norms and you're pushing against legal barriers and uh, hierarchies that don't want us to exist is the reality. Like we're, we're it, is a, it is a fight to exist a lot of the time. Uh, and we exist in gray areas as well. Like there's no legal definition for what we are. So we have to kind of skip around and kind of work out where we can fit and where we can exist. Rowan. Um, I, I would also kind of add to that, that what, one way to kind of mitigate against kind of burnout, I suppose, or like um, is, to, is to have a really, really good team um, and not take on everything by yourself because it, and so so yeah having having the areas that you're kind of have oversight on um but also yeah i mean we might talk about this a bit later about the team that comes together so some questions but making sure that it's not all on your shoulders and that you're sharing sharing the work and and able to focus in and really delve into the area that you're working on but um have others do the same and working together i think i think helps yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's... Oh, Lucy. Um, I just wanted to say um, about the kind of the getting started with something smaller and then growing it. Um, the, and kind of a, to reiterate what you were saying, Artemis, about it just being all-consuming and not sure kind of how big you can get it without doing that. I think if you want it to be anything more than a homemade meetup, if you want it to be a kind of a functioning community that's consistent and has longevity, um, then it takes a hell of a lot and it is pretty all-consuming. Um, and on the kind of the starting form and growing, um, we did something which I regret, which was we started as a forest school, a family forest school with parents as well. Um, and we did that for six months to establish community and kind of establish ourselves in the local home ed community because I was very new to it at the time. Um, and then we changed it into a learning community. And we were really open about that. We were really clear about what the plan was, what, what it was going to be. And, you know, absolutely, we told everyone that there was no surprise for anyone and yet it still causes us problems because people still think of us as a forest school first and a learning community second um, and I regret doing that now because it's, it's it getting people to shift their mindset and we found we had a lot of families that didn't actually want to have their kids in a two or three day a week drop-off setting they wanted to be with their children in, in nature and do the forest school thing which is lovely but it's not what we wanted. And so we had families that we'd built a relationship with and they'd been built a relationship with the setting and the space. And then we were saying, yeah, okay, but now this is what we're becoming and it's not the same. And they didn't want that. So that kind of, that caused problems. Um, I also want to say one other thing, which was um, that um, something Ian Cunningham said um, when back when we were first starting that really resonated with me. And that was the, um, the need for longevity. Because you're, 
taking on, you're giving giving a space to these families and to these children, some of whom are coming out of school because they can come to your setting. And if you're then not going to survive for more than two or three years, or even a year, you know, if you're just going to disappear again, what's going to happen to those kids when you're not there anymore? If you're saying you're going to provide this space, then you need to provide it for the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I'd really love to hear from uh, both Kelly and Ellie actually about because you're um, from because you're from quite newer settings. So I think this might all be quite fresh in your mind. So I'd love to hear from. Uh, can I hear from Ellie? Um, yeah, um, definitely. We, we are definitely working towards longevity um, and I totally agree with them with Lucy there with regards to actually providing that space for that length of time you know if you are you know if you're going to provide the space you need to to look at longevity um, as a new setting um, yeah completely and utterly all-consuming um, from the setup through the inspection by CIW through oh god we're gonna have another inspection soon as well so yeah it, it you have to live and breathe it really here in wales particularly um and i think but you do you know everybody you know we, we that's why we're here so um yeah that's yeah, yeah it's been all consuming um yeah. lots of late nights <laughs> yeah thank you ellie kelly yes we are the same it's definitely all consuming um it's myself and my husband at the moment that run our community so it is it's us it's just us (laughs) so um time management is absolutely you know it's of utmost importance you have to especially when you are home educating your own children as well we have a three-year-old a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old so just trying to manage your time I mean I, I don't do it very well honestly I don't I, I'm, I'm up until you know one two o'clock some, some mornings trying to trying to get everything done and it's trying to find a right balance um, and also I see uh, in your your question there in the chat box that you have a three-year-old and depending on um, if you was going to use that exemption clause within the, um, the Ofsted framework you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to have your three-year-old there along with you it's children you know age um five the term after their fifth birthday and so you would need to think about where your if your where your three-year-old would go or if you would have you know i don't know how you would figure that out our three-year-old goes to a babysitter on the days that we're open which he loves um so so yeah there's there is a lot to think about it and it does take over your life um getting a team together is you know I wish I had more of a team around me and we're looking at that but it's finding them like-minded people who are on the same page as you and they are they're hard to find around here you know or if if you do find them they don't have time they have other jobs and and being able to pay those people as well I mean you may be lucky to have some volunteers we've had volunteers come and go before but um but yeah, definitely having a strong team around you and just finding that balance, very important and not, not getting burnt out because, you know, no one wants that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to really like to pick up on what you've just said, Kelly, and, and also what Rowan said about, um, yeah, the people around you being really, really crucial. And that also matches with a question that we've had about um, how do you how do you find people? And then once you found people, how do you communicate them with them well? So you are a good team, because I think for me, that's almost the most important thing when you're when you're setting something up is that you have really, really solid communication. So you know that as soon as there's a disagreement, it's not all just going to fall apart um, and particularly when you've got a bigger team I think that can be that can be really really challenging uh, and I wondered if Rowan if you'd like to share your experience because you've got six founders is that right? Yeah so um, so um, the, uh, Freebie Girls started when another democratic school closed called Small Acres which is based in South London and Peckham and um, and the families from Small Acres wanted to start another setting and actually the family's put into two groups and one of them approached me. I'd been an intern at Small Acres and had also been running a pilot project called the Inside Out School that some of them had been involved in. Um, and what happened is that they contacted me in February. We met in March and we opened in September of 2017. So compared to a lot of other projects, it was a really quick turnaround. Um, and the, and so, so it's six, it's six co-founders but um, the, other, the other five are parents and I'm the only person who's not a parent and I'm the only facilitator amongst the founders and we've hired another facilitator, Sara, who's on the call today as well. Um, and I mean, in, in the initial stages, what Kelly was saying about ensuring that you all have the same vision, that, that, that is the number one step. And if you cannot get that aligned right in the beginning, then you can't really move forward. So you have to have lots of really deep conversations right at the start. Because once those cracks start coming through, then it's a lot harder to know how to, how to negotiate them when the project's already running. We were incredibly lucky to meet um, 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 Bas Rosenbrand, who's a, a Dutch um, facilitator who's helped set up lots of democratic schools in the Netherlands and who introduced us to um, a method uh, to, to sociocracy, a method called round speak. There's a session tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock about it. I think there's three more spaces left if anybody wants to come. Um, but what we do is, so when we first met, we all were like, well, like, we want to be a democratic community. Then we met Bath and we're like, oh, maybe we actually want to be a sociocratic community. And sociocracy is a consent-based decision-making mechanism. That's what we use with the children, but more importantly, that's what we use with the, with the directors as well. So every decision that is taken, every meeting that we have is run um, um, based on a number of principles, and every decision we take has to, has to be, um, everyone needs to consent to it before we can take it. That sometimes makes decisions a lot harder to take, um, or it takes longer to get to them, but um, it means that everyone's on board um, throughout. Um, so I'd, I'd, we've also found within the team that having that external support that we do sometimes go to when we need to is, is incredibly valuable. So there have been moments over the last three years where there have been kind of schisms and difficulties in, in communication, but being able to take time out and have an external person support us through those has been incredibly useful and has has helped to rebuild trust and bonds and also reestablish processes of how we work. I think it's also really um, valuable to, and kind of, there's a lot of integrity in us working in the same way that the children do. Um, and so I really appreciate that. Um, 
I don't know to what extent the children, the children see it, but I think as an organization, I really appreciate having that coherence in, in the functioning of, your, of, of the setting. Yeah, I completely agree, Rowan. We, we're, we're very similar at The Garden. We used to refer to ourselves as Democratic Community for Children, and it's sort of almost quite recently, really, we've realised that we're actually not democratic at all because we don't vote and we don't have representatives. We make decisions by the consensus, so we're not, we're not democratic at all, actually. <laughs> so sociocratic is probably a much, a much better terminology, and as is consent-based, um, which is much more appropriate. And I think, I think that's a really solid way of making decisions um, because you do, you end up with decisions made that you know that everyone's happy with, and yet it takes more time. But I think that does lead to your, um, it's a more sustainable model, for sure. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to chime in on that? Lucy? Um, I had a, have had a different experience to Rowan in that um, we also set up with some founders, um, a, group, a group of four founders, and I was the only one who was facilitating, the other three weren't. Um, and for, th for us, that didn't work at all. Um, and it really quite, because we're the, we were in, the, in the setting, we were responding to what the children were asking um, for and changing kind of structures and changing how we were organizing ourselves and changing what we were providing in response to the children's needs and um, the other founders not being there to see that and kind of live it with the community may, meant that it really exacerbated problems that we had in, in terms of kind of vision alignment so totally second that needing to have loads of really deep conversations before you start um, and really not not shying away from the stuff that you disagree on um, and don't just kind of assume that it's all going to work out because you've got the same broad idea because it won't <laughs> um, when it really comes to it that those differences really matter um, but for us having having directors um, and decision makers who weren't directly involved in the community um, didn't work at all and, and we ended up splitting and, and, and have kind of um, moved on with, with people only just like the decision makers are all in the space as well um, Sophie. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the relation strength of relationship is important for these projects in the same way that, um, you know, being in it <laughs> for real is important for them to work out because of the things that it calls on us to do and, and the experience of it is hard. Um, at the cabin, I've known Sarah, who's the co-founder with me for seven years and, and our lives have been interwoven during that time personally and through community organising and our whole staff team now actually pretty much um, are people that have been become known to to me and to us and to the philosophy along the way so we've so like I was saying before about the value of having these other little projects like different experiments in a way before your setting it was through those other things that our now staff team emerged and and I think that that's how you can also like help with communication because if if you have observed someone or an idea growing, then you have a sense of actually what that idea is. So when you come into um, setting up a space, then you know you've already got a lot of shared understanding because of that preliminary relational groundwork. And I know that's maybe not practical in all situations, and you know there's an urgency often to wanting to get these settings open because of the age of our own children, for example, and the need. Um, but but I know that, you know, 
as a sort of unfortunate truth if that hadn't if that process hadn't happened then we wouldn't have what we do have now so um so for me it's been super helpful and i also think that like don't be afraid of having imagination and strength of vision in this work that would be another thing to say like i think that you know it can be like i don't know like doesn't need to be this hot potato of passing around where no one wants to say actually what they really want what they really feel and what they really think is important about the setting like own your vision um because if you own your vision it's easier for you to articulate it and then communicate it to other people and see if they like it or not you know so i think i think that engaging with your own imagination about what you would like your setting to be like really questioning it and challenging it and pushing it into the edges like really how important is this thing is it why is it here why is this on our values list like does it really matter like test test out your own idea until you feel really strong in it and then and then express it and and my experience is that when you do that then the people that like it will come you know and then you have a good alignment you have good compatibility you have more security you have a more solid community um and you have great relationships and you know you're not spending time necessarily dealing with a lot of conflict because you have a really good foundation yeah kezia were you waiting to say something kezia kezia did you have your hand up Sorry, yeah, um, my children are being very noisy in the background and I was getting distracted. Um, yeah, I had one little point which was um, when we started, I read a fantastic blog post by um, a guy called Fox Kierhone, who was uh, one of the founders of Wicklow Subbury School. And I think it's called something like, So You Want to Start a Democratic School, or something like that. And he made the point about vision. Um, and said there's kind of, even though you're democratic, there's kind of somebody's the vision holder um, and it could be a single person or it could be a group. And before you go all public and say you're doing X, Y, Z, you probably want to think if you're the one that's instigating it, um, do you want to be the vision holder? In which case, don't talk to people too much right now but do lots of reading, go and do some visits, think about what your vision is, articulate it really well, and then recruit people to your vision and be really clear about it. Or if you want to create your vision democratically or sociocratically, like collectively, then say that, but then you can't be the vision holder. Like you can't be both. So you either are setting your stall out and you're like, this is what we are. We are a democratic school. And, you know, this is exactly what we are. We're, we're not in a field or we are in a field or, you know, we're, we're five days or we're three days. You know, you've got to be clear about these things or say, I want to do something different and I want interesting people to do it with. Let's create it together. But then you can't be precious about other people chipping away. Um, and I think I had quite a clear vision, but I didn't articulate it so well at the very beginning. And we recruited lots of people very quickly in a like massive flurry of enthusiasm. And then there was like lots of pain for several months as we realized that all these people that were super excited about getting on board actually didn't share my vision because I hadn't explained it very well. Um, and then there's that feeling of hurt that somehow you've let them down, that you're not creating what they want but you never you never meant to but you just didn't communicate very well and 
I think a lot of projects go through that. Um, you know, we learned a lot from it. But, you know, if I was advising someone that's about to do this, I'd say, hold off, don't get carried away. Think about it really carefully. Which way do you want to go? Yeah, totally. Um, there's, uh, so you, and don't forget that you can start off in one place and also end up in another as well. So uh, when we first were starting, the gardens had many incarnations over the, over the years before we launched as the garden as it is now. Um, and uh, when we were starting this incarnation, I was working with two other people um, and we were basically ready to go. But the other two people weren't as, just weren't as committed to the idea and so they were kind of like whoa hang on I think we should put this off I think Charlie's like nope I'm ready I'm ready to go I want to do it I'm going to just I'm just going to do it if you don't want to come along that's fine but I'm going to have to push ahead and I'm going to do it so I did and they sort of went off and we're still we didn't fall out over it it's, we're still it was still very amicable but they just weren't in a place where they were ready to proceed and so I became the vision holder and it did become my vision but I'd never wanted to do it on my own uh, and then over the years more uh, so two more people have uh, joined me and have become vision holders of uh, along and we and we communicate and we agree what the vision is shared and so you can start off on your own and then others can join you or you can start as a group and then you can go off on your own like all of these things are possible you don't have to stick to one plan uh, for the whole for the whole duration forevermore Thank you. We've got, um, we've went with, I just want to, noting that we're sort of four minutes, we've only got four minutes left. Um, we've got a really fantastic question from Jodie West. Uh, Jodie, if you're there, would you like to turn your microphone on? Uh, so Jodie asks, is it possible for the panel to give a summary of the key considerations when setting up? What has worked? What hasn't? What can we learn from your own experiences uh, to, to avoid issues? There's quite a lot. There's quite a lot in there. So, can we start with maybe a summary of the of the key considerations? Would anyone like to suggest a key consideration when you're setting up a project? Um, I would suggest um, so yeah, the values. I think for me, like that's where you start. You start with your values. That's the most important thing. Just start with what your values is, and your values and your vision um, is the most important thing to get to get straight. Um, Sophie. I would say think about your context, like your actual geographical context and your local community, because different areas, like different places and different home ed communities are different to each other, right? And they have different needs. And, and for it was really important for us to create a space that was that met the specific needs of our specific local community. Um, and so, yeah, I would just, I would think about that. I mean, not in terms of the vision and the values necessarily, um, be clear on what you, what you want and need to do in that regard. But in terms of, for example, whether or not it's realistic for them to register for three days a week, or if that's maybe not appropriate for the type of community that you have and you need something more flexible. Um, yeah, so know your local community and, and, and your context and then design in alignment with your community and context. Yeah, absolutely. Rowan? I would say, like, this should also be fun. Like, what do you like doing? Like, do you like being with kids? Do you like doing spreadsheets? Do you like your co-founders? Like, you need to enjoy it. It's, it's going to go on for years and different people can bring different skills. And if, you're, if you find what you love within it, then it's an absolute joy. So, so identify that, find that, ask the others in the team what they like and try as much as you can to do, to do the things that really make you feel like in your power and just happy to get up in the morning. Yeah, really great point, Rowan. Thank you. Uh, Kelly, do you have any key considerations that you'd like to add? 
Um, so just figuring out why, what, why, why do you want to um, set up one of these communities? And also, have you got time to do it? Um, you know, what's your vision? Um, and I loved Rowan's point on, um, you know, it just has to be fun for you. To be honest, when, when we are at the setting, I am in my element. I love it. it is, it's not work. It's not, I, I, but it's the paperwork and the, you know, the other stuff that goes with it. But that is why I do it. Because when we are there, it's not, it doesn't feel like work. It's just fun. And also to see the children so happy. And um, when you have children come to your setting from a school and to just see them blossom is like, it's just incredible. It really is. Um, you know, some parents say, oh, they, they bounce off of the walls. And I'm like, well, take away the walls. And there's no walls to bounce off of. So, you know, just, um, you just have to love it. You have to just love what you do. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're actually at um, 8.30 now. Um, I could very, very, I'd really love to get a little contribution from everybody there if we can. Um, could I just ask um, Ellie very quickly just to give a key consideration? I think I think they've all been stated from my point of view. Um, all the key considerations. Um, I think, yeah, fun, everything. Yeah. Thank you, Lucy. Have you got a key consideration for us? It's all really similar. And um, slight twist on what Ryan said about needing to enjoy it is you can't just do it for your children. You've got to do it because you want it as well, not just because they need it. Yeah, absolutely, Kezia. Otherwise, you resent them. Oh, sorry, Lucy. <laughs> Kezia, do you have a, a final consideration for us? Your mic's off, by the way. I can't think of anything. I think they've all they've all been yeah. said. But um, just believe in it, and you know it will be hard, but um, it will also be really rewarding. Um, try and have a bit of perspective. Sometimes you have to stand back. I find one of the best things is when visitors come because then you somehow see it through their eyes, rather than all the little tiny things that you're working on improving. You go. Oh, yeah, it's really amazing, isn't it? And they're good days. Uh, that is a really lovely note to finish on. So thank you so much, Kezia. Thank you, all of our panellists. You've been incredible. Thank you to everybody who's come along. This has been a really fantastic discussion. I'm really sorry to anyone who's questioned. We didn't get around to We had so many questions and so many amazing things that people were talking about. So I'm really sorry if we didn't answer your question. Um, yeah, thank you, everyone. And enjoy the rest of the Freedom to Learn. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.